Good morning again. If you would please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 will be our text this morning. Uh, I don't want to start by asking you to imagine for just a minute, and if it helps you to imagine this, you can close your eyes. Uh, but I want you to imagine for just a moment that you are the proud parent of a newly minted high school graduate. Okay? I'm sorry, Christina, I know it's hard. Okay, but I want you to imagine that you're in Christina's shoes, okay, and you have a newly graduated 18-year-old son, okay? Can you imagine that? Everyone's there. You're imagining you have an 18-year-old son, okay, and your precious little boy is getting ready to run off to your favorite college, okay, probably Oklahoma, but your favorite college, and that's where your kid's going. All right, and here are the main questions that your son is asking as he's Packed up his car, he's getting ready to go, he's out the door, he goes, Mom, Dad, I've got two questions for you. First question is this, how can I date as many good-looking girls as possible? Okay, first question. His second question is, how can I attend as many parties as possible and have the best time of my life? Okay, those are his last two questions to use a parent. Now, are those good questions? Okay, is college a good place for dating? Okay, absolutely. Okay, I saw Rachel week one when I was at Oklahoma Christian, and I locked that down as fast as I could, right? College is a great place for dating. Now, is college also a good place to hang out with friends and have the time of your life? Yes. Okay, some of the best friends I ever made were friends that Rachel and I made in college. Okay, so what's the problem? Hey, well, the problem is these are not the only questions that your son should be asking, right? In fact, these are not the main questions. I'm sure that all of you as parents would rather your child ask, how can I do as well as possible in college in order to set myself up for the rest of life, right? Um, and you want him to ask questions about what should I major in? What am I going to do with my life? Right, and if he does that, and if he focuses on doing college as well as possible, then along the way he can also date and have fun and do all of those other things. Fair enough? All right, well, I tell you that because I think that when we get to the book of Romans, many of us have been conditioned to ask the wrong questions. And when we do that, we miss the right questions. And I think we ask questions like, how can I be saved? Is it by faith or is it by baptism? Okay, and, and what about predestination? Is Romans 9 through 11 really teaching that I don't get a choice in the matter? Okay, and I think like our questions about college, about life at college, these are not necessarily bad questions, but they're not the main question that we should be asking. Okay, and we can address those questions as we go along, and Romans will address those things, and we'll talk about those things as we continue through the book of Romans. But if we ask just those questions, we will miss the main point, the main thing that Paul is really talking about, what we're supposed to get as we read this letter. Okay, I think there are two main pitfalls that we get into as we try to interpret the book of Romans, and I think you have to get both of these right, or else the rest of this letter doesn't make any sense, and we think it's about something that it's not really about. All right, if you're taking notes, I really do want you to write this down, because I think this part's important. Okay, and the first pitfall that we tend to get into is we tend to think that this book is about people, okay, but it's not. Okay, Romans is all about God. 
What I mean by that is, you and I are not the main characters of the story. And if we approach Scripture, and really if we approach Romans in particular, saying, okay, God, I've got my life going on, I've got all my friends, I've got work, I've got family obligations, I've got all these things I'm doing, and I want to know, Lord, how I fit this God thing into this story that I'm living, then I think we get it all wrong. I think instead the big thing Romans is showing us is that God is telling a story. He's telling this wonderful story of redemption and he's working through the world. He's doing all of these amazing things. And Paul tells all about God's story and how I fit my life into his story. In other words, the world doesn't revolve around me. It revolves around God and how do I fit into that. See the difference? Okay, the second main pitfall we get into when we think about Romans is that we think it's about individuals. Okay, but again, it's not. It's about the community. All right, and we will hit this idea really hard, especially when we get into chapter 9 in several weeks from now. Okay, but it bears emphasizing now. Okay, the main question is not, how can God save me, an individual sinner? Okay, the question Paul is asking is, how can God create a salvation people, a people that he has given his Holy Spirit to, the spirit of life and power and godliness, and how do I become a part of that redeemed community? Okay, the question we typically ask is in very individualistic terms. We ask, what's my personal relationship to God? But the right question is, is what people do I belong to? Okay, it's all about community, and that changes the way we read it. Does that make sense? It makes sense to four people. Okay, that's good. I can work with that. All right, so here's the first section of chapter 3. Okay, and just fair warning, these first couple of paragraphs are some of the most difficult to interpret in the entire letter. And so if this doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense on the first reading, note that you're in very good company. Okay? Scholars have been debating about these first couple of paragraphs of chapter 3 uh, for the last several millennia. Okay? This, is, this is not the easiest thing in the world, but pay attention to his argument because it does flow and it makes a lot of sense. Notice chapter 3 starting in verse 1. Paul says, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings about God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may increase? Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. 
as it is written. Okay, and note at this point, Paul's going to quote a bunch of Old Testament texts. He's going to take all of them out of context, but he's using all of them to make one central point. Notice this litany of scripture he quotes. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And in the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. As I said, there's a lot in just these couple of paragraphs. Uh, Paul even seems to contradict himself just within these words. And I think for these couple of paragraphs to make sense, we need to outline what Paul's been doing up to this point. We need to get a good handle on chapter 1, chapter 2, and see where he's going with this bigger argument. Okay, So some of this will be a review if you've been here the last few weeks. Okay, But this, again, this is, this is the big picture. Right, and, and notice, here's point one on your outline. But the first thing Paul says is he says that the big problem has always been sin. Okay, the big problem, the one thing we've got to get right, we've got to fix, is sin. All right, several months back, my car quit starting. I would get in, the starter would run, the lights would come on, it wasn't a battery issue, I knew it was something more complicated than that, but my car just wouldn't start. Turned out I needed a new throttle body, which I don't even know what that is, I just know it's expensive, Right? And now, I want you to imagine that after I took it to my mechanic, if I went back and said, okay, I'm back, you've had my car for a while, what can you tell me? Imagine if he said, well, there was a scratch on the side of your car where the bumper separated, I fixed that for you. Okay, I also vacuumed out the interior of your car and it's looking really good on the inside. Okay, I also washed your car and waxed it and your car looks better than it's looked in a long, long time. And I said to him, I said, well, that's great. That's wonderful. Does it start? And he said, well, no, I didn't get around to that part of it. But you can't imagine how good your car looks. Okay? How happy would I be with my mechanic? Okay? Not very. Why? Because the one thing that I really needed to fix, the one thing that matters more than everything else is whether or not the car starts. Okay, I tell you that because there's a lot of things going on around us. There's a lot of goals, a lot of problems, a lot of things that we chase. We have families and jobs and hobbies and schedules. We are a busy people, but none of that makes any difference at all if we can't fix the one overriding problem. Paul claims the one problem, the one thing we've got to get solved or nothing else matters is the problem of sin in the world. Okay, that's what Scripture's all about. We start talking about this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, in which Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit, and they discover that sin has consequences. Okay, specifically, we see sin leads to a separation from God, and it leads to death. Right? We read Genesis 3, we see they have to leave the garden, eventually they will die because of their sin. Okay, we also talked about this when we looked at Romans 1 just a couple of weeks ago. Okay, if you remember that lesson, it was all about what happens when we leave God. 
Okay, and it's apart from God, things get really ugly really fast. Okay, look how chaotic the world is. Look how the pagans live. Open your eyes and see the war and the famine and the rape and the murder. It's brutal out there. Humanity is fallen. We have a sin problem in the world. Creation itself is fallen. We have to find a solution to sin or nothing else matters. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing, though, Paul says, but we have a covenant. We have a covenant. You know, whenever I took Greek back in college, uh, the professor started and he said, before I can teach you guys any Greek, we need to take the next six weeks and just learn English grammar. And I remember thinking, I don't want to learn English grammar. I took this class so I could learn Greek. And several of us complained about it. And he said, well, the problem, guys, okay, and one girl, okay, my wife was actually in that class. He said, the problem, class, is most of you went to schools that didn't do a very good job of teaching you English. And before you can learn Greek grammar, you have to learn English grammar. And he spent several weeks just teaching us English grammar. Okay, and it turns out he was right. Okay, without that basic background knowledge, none of the rest of the lessons would have made sense. You have to learn basic grammar before you can learn more complicated grammar, right? This is true in any kind of discipline, right? You have to learn addition before you can learn algebra, before you can learn calculus. You have to learn your ABCs before you can study poetry. In scripture, you have to learn the covenant before anything that comes after it makes any sense, the foundational knowledge you and I have to have before we can study Jesus and the church and God's plan for the world, everything else, the ABCs of our faith are the covenant that God made with Israel. Okay, God wasn't content just to leave the world in chaos and sin, and so God's plan was to make a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Israel. Right? Several big pieces of this covenant, right? God promised to bless this family, lead them to a promised land, make them a great nation. Ultimately, he says the entire world will be blessed. Okay, blessing is opposite of curse. Okay, the world's under a curse, but the whole world will be blessed through you. God has chosen the descendants of Israel to save the world, to be a light to the nations. This is the good news. God is faithful, God is righteous, through Israel God will save the world, literally redeem us from slavery. That's the covenant. Sometimes we skip over all this Old Testament stuff, we run straight to talking about Jesus, but I think we make a mistake when we do. Your entire Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is about this covenant. There is no relationship with God. There is no church. There is no salvation without the covenant of God. So the world's in chaos, number one. But number two, we have a covenant. Here's where we get to Romans 3, though. Okay, it's number three. Because Israel is part of the problem. And this is a lot of what we talked about starting in Romans 2. This is really what we hit this week. Okay, notice again these first few verses of chapter 3. Because Paul says, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. 
First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Okay, now what does entrusted mean? When you're entrusted with something, that doesn't mean you get to keep it for yourself, right? If I entrust you with something, you're supposed to hold that for somebody else. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human a liar. Okay, so here's where we are. God makes this covenant with the patriarchs in Genesis. Then in Exodus, he brings the Israelites out of Egypt, takes them to the promised land. Right? How long after their redemption did Israel remain faithful to the covenant? Did they all look and say, okay, God, we hear you. With the great hand, you did all these plagues. You brought us out of Egypt. You defeated Pharaoh. Now we see that you are the one true God. We're going to follow you faithfully all the days of our lives. Is that what happened? Okay, before they could even cross the sea to get out of Egypt, they were asking to go back, right? So what does God do? He opens up the sea in front of them, leads them through, washes away the armies of Pharaoh in the sea, and so they say, okay, God, now we get it. We're going to remain faithful to you all the days of our life. No. What happens? God takes him to a mountain. Moses goes up on the top of the mountain to get the very words of God chiseled into a rock. And while he's up there, what are the people doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. Okay. Finally, we get this people to the promised land. They see the promised land. They say, okay, God, now we get it. We're going to go conquer the promised land and be faithful. Is that what happens? Or do they say, no, we can't do it? The same God that defeated the armies of Pharaoh, he can't defeat these armies. Okay, so we wait for that generation to all die off. We get a whole brand new generation, and they go finally conquer the promised land. We see the walls of Jericho fall, and they say, we're going to follow God all the days of our lives, and they follow him faithfully forever. Is that what happens? No. They fail. They fail over and over and over again. You read your Old Testament and every story tends to be a story of Israel failing God. They failed God so badly that, a gener- that 700 years before Paul writes the words of Romans, God wiped out Israel, brought in Babylon, completely destroyed the temple, completely destroyed the city, took them all off into captivity, scattered his people amongst all the nations. The Jews completely failed. It has been a thousand years since Israel has been relevant politically when Paul writes Romans. Now Jerusalem is on the edge of the empire. Nobody cares what's going on in Jerusalem. The Jews are scattered over the entire world. They are a strange, secluded people that nobody takes seriously. Okay? Israel was supposed to be the light to the world, and yet nobody in the world is looking to Israel and saying, Ah, there's the light of the world. I want to be more like that. Israel failed. You know, I want you to imagine for a moment that your car broke down. Okay, but never fear because you've got AAA. So as you're sitting on the side of the road, you make your call to AAA. AAA says, okay, we'll be there in 30 minutes. and We'll get you fixed up back on your way. So you wait 30 minutes. Then you get a call and it's the AAA guy. And he says, hey, I hate to tell you, but my car's broken down on the side of the road. Nobody's coming. What do you do when the plan to get you out of trouble also needs to be gotten out of trouble? What do you do when the plan to rescue itself needs to be rescued? You know, the simplified version that we sometimes hear of Romans is that Romans chapter 1 is a condemnation of the Gentiles and Romans 2 is a condemnation of the Jews. So everybody's pretty much just out of luck. 
Okay, but there is more to it than this. And the reason that Romans chapter 3 is so complicated is because we've tended to make Romans 1 and 2 too simplistic. Okay, Romans 1 is, yes, the Gentiles live like pagans. They don't know God. They're completely lost. And we say, okay, but we've got a covenant. We've got a rescue plan from God. He's going to redeem us all from slavery because he has chosen this people, redeem them as his own. They are going to be the light to the world. And then we get to chapter 2 and we see that the rescue operation hasn't done any better. They had the very words of God. They were supposed to be a light to the world and they didn't do it. Now what do we do? So here's what chapter 3 starts to say. This is point number 4 on your outline. Is, is if, sorry, if God is going to be righteous and if God is going to be faithful, he must keep the covenant. And so the big question in the beginning of Romans is not, how can I be saved? Okay, the big question at the beginning of Romans is, what in the world is God doing? God makes this covenant that through Israel, all creation will be redeemed from the power of sin and death. And yet anyone with two eyes can look around at the world and ask a very legitimate question, did God fail? Israel is scattered and irrelevant. Caesar rules the world and claims to be God. The Gentiles are running around living like pagans and even worse, so are the Jews. Is God faithful to the covenant that he created? How's God possibly going to work all this out? God will have to accomplish what Israel was called to do but failed to do. God will rescue the world from sin and death. How is he going to do that when his plan seems to have failed? How will he make it clear that Israel is still the object of his love but also needs saving just like everyone else? How can God possibly do this? Okay. And I'm really glad you asked that question because that's what we'll talk about next week. Okay. How can God possibly fulfill his covenant when his own people have failed so miserably? All right, the, the last thing I want to say this morning and the point that I want us to leave with is the, the question, what kind of God do we serve? Because okay. I think a lot of what Romans is doing is it's answering this question, what kind of God do we serve? Okay, this is the definition of how awesome our God is. Okay, our God is working his plan regardless of how much we have failed. God is bringing his will into the world. He's bringing his kingdom into the world regardless of how unfaithful you and I have been. We were never faithful, but God was always faithful. The kind of God we serve is the kind of God who is faithful, he is righteous, and he loves us dearly.